Broadway Radios this week on Broadway for Sunday, July 15, 2018. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Jenna Tessa Fox, Michael Portantier, and Jan Simpson. Jenna is a theater writer and a reviewer whose articles have appeared at Time Out New York, Playbill, Broadway World, and New York Theater Guide. Good morning, Jenna. Good morning, James. How are you doing? I'm good. Where are you joining us from? I don't know where you are today. Oh, I am in central Jersey visiting the family uh, for the weekend. And Excellent. Hi, Patsy, my godmother, who is uh, also visiting my family. Family <laughs> reunion. <laughs> Excellent. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. Also with us is Jan Simpson. Jan is the Director of Arts and Culture Journalism Program at Cooney's Graduate School of Journalism, also writes for TDF Stages, American Theater, and has her own blog at Broadway and Me. Her podcast, Stagecraft, is part of the Broadway Radio Network, and she is also the co-host of Theater Talk on PBS. Good morning, Jan. Good morning. Good morning. Peter is, uh, I'd like to say, away on assignment. But uh, he's, it's a fun assignment. He's seeing Freaky Friday out at the Music Theater Wichita. And uh, so hopefully uh, we'll get some good reviews. But he is coming to us with some trivia at the end. With us this morning, we have a very special guest. Lucy Arnaz is with us. Broadway fans will have seen Lucy in shows like They're Playing Our Song, Lost or Yonkers, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, and Pippin, the revival that was in 2015. And Lucy, right now, is uh, calling us from Old Saber, Connecticut, where last night she opened her show, I Got the Job, Songs from My Musical Past. Uh, so, Lucy, thank you for getting up on a Sunday morning and talking with us. <laughs> it's my pleasure. We're heading out today, anyway, for the next stop. So, it's a pleasure to talk to you all. You're heading off to the Bay Street Theater in Sag Harbor. That's a beautiful we little theater. We are. We're taking the ferry this morning. Go over there oh. and be in Sag Harbor tomorrow night. And Excellent. then straight on into Birdland in New Good. York. Ooh. And you'll be at Birdland nice. from July 17th to the 21st. Yeah, that you're... whole Tuesday through Saturday. Yes. And then you're up at Provincetown uh, July 23rd. Right. And the Willow Bay Theater yes. in Jamestown, New York in August, on August right. 4th. So yes. uh, tell us... Tell us about this show, I Got the Job. What can we expect to see? You know, it is kind of what it says. It's a a retrospective (laughs) of stories and songs from all the musicals that I've been involved in in 45 years of almost 50 years of being in the business, but certainly about 40 years of doing musicals and being on stage. And it's a funny thing. It's it's an idea my dad suggested when I was about 24 years old and I gave him a funny look like, oh yeah, really? Like I'm going to do that because I've done two musicals pop. What a stupid idea. Cause you know, <laughs> dads are stupid and they never have any good ideas. 
And I looked back on it now and I thought, you know, in, at its core, that was a really good concept. And now it works. So we put it together. And last night was the first time we've actually done it in front of an audience. And the best thing I can say is it got such a good reaction that we now have to cut uh-huh. <laughs> minutes out to, to fit into the schedule at Birdland. They have to have X amount of time, you know. So right. We're really happy with how it turned out, and it's fun. It's, it's mostly a lot of great stories and some wonderful, wonderful music because I've worked with God. When I look back, some of the finest composers ever from, you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein to Marvin Hamlisch and uh, Carol Bayer-Sager and uh, Leonard Bernstein and the Gershwins. And it's just there's a lot of good material to choose from. Cy Coleman. Well, I was lucky enough to get to see Lucy and Robert Klein and Marvin Hamlish uh, recreate a, a, an evening, a, like a mini version of they're playing our song some years ago. And that was really fantastic. Um, uh, we had such a good time doing that. Yeah, we used to do that a lot, go out with the symphonies and each of us do our little show and then do a mini. They're playing our song afterwards. And that was great. Really great. I miss Marvin. And for this show, you have Ron Abel as your musical director, who's absolutely wonderful. This is just very, yeah, it's very Lucy Unplugged. It's Lucy (laughs) Arnaz and a musical director at a piano. It's a high wire act. Uh, But we did it two years ago, same way, different show. And I really had a great, great time. It was a wonderful challenge, very intimate way to, to be with an audience. I love a big band. I love my big band shows. I love working with 14 pieces or 10 pieces or a trio. You know, I'm all about rhythm, but there's something <laughs> magical about it. Just being a great, you know, musical director. It's got to be somebody who can really play. And Ron Abel is probably one of the three best musical directors on the planet. So uh, we have a really good time. What I makes guess... him a great musical director? He's, he's one of the best. And we've been working together for, oh, just only 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, 30 years this past May. It was 30 years since I met him, and except for a few one-offs here and there where he wasn't available and I had to work with somebody else. And there are good people out there, but there's nobody like Ron. There's just nobody like Ron, period. And we, he's known me for so long, and we breathe together, and he thinks like me. And when we say we're going to be downstairs at 1030, at 1030, we're both right down. You know, we're, <laughs> we have the same concept of professionalism, and I just love him. I love working with him, and... Um, so, and this is the first time we've put together a brand new show in years. We started out with an all evening Irving Berlin show 30 years ago. And little by little after it wasn't Irving's 100th birthday, we slid out some Berlin numbers and slid in <laughs> some Gershwin and slid in some Cy Coleman. And over the years, it's 250 arrangements. And so when we get a job, depending on the size of the band they want, we just sort of pull from the library. You know, we're going to put a show together and it's going to be this. And sometimes we form it into, oh, it's a show about love or whatever, which they all end up being no matter what you do, because every song is written about love. Uh, But this time I really thought we're going to start from scratch. We're going to put a whole new thing together. And that was so much fun. We don't get the chance to do that very often. So it was exciting. It's like a little mini Broadway musical. Well, speaking of Irving Berlin, I got to see Lucy in Annie Get Your Gun at Jones Beach. Yes, I talk about that in the show. Uh, Mm -hmm. That must have been incredible. And how unique. Well, what a a unique place. And I don't think people even have an idea what that experience was like. It's still there. They do rock concerts and things now, I think. But to do musicals 
full-fledged musicals on those stages, that huge big backstage and the little main stage, and you'd have a 30-piece orchestra, 8,000-seat theater, and Mm. sets coming in on pontoon boats, you know, like just (laughs) insanity. It was so beautiful. But it was hard because it was all summer long, and you're outdoors, and you're singing, you know, in the original keys, in my case, Ethel Merman's Hello, outside on the water all summer long. It was, and, you know, it would rain, and then they wouldn't want to call the show because it wasn't raining that hard. You know, like, oh, come on, you can, you can, you can deal with a little rain. Meanwhile, you have your big ball gown and your feather hats falling in your face. And it, uh, it's fun experiences, but that was a great summer because it really led to their playing our song. It was, I got my first uh, New York times review because of that show and my first Hirschfeld cartoon, you know, caricature. And, and then I got the script for their playing our song. So I think that was a pivotal wow. moment. The first uh, mm. professional, the first professional show I saw was at Jones Beach. Uh, I think it was Finian's Rainbow, uh, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's just, it's an incredible venue. I can't imagine how difficult it is to perform there and keep everybody's attention because it's so. It vast. was hilarious. I'm sorry, if I ever if I ever write a book, and I'm sure I will someday. There's like four chapters just on Jones Beach, uh, just <laughs> on what happened, wow. what it was like, and. I mean, literally, when you'd make your entrances, the dressing rooms were in the back. They were behind the big stage. So there were these little putt-putt boats that would take you from the dressing room door (laughs) around to the front stage. And Harv Presnell, if you remember, played uh, Frank Butler. And he was a character, Mr. Presnell. I loved him so much. But he was a character. And he used to flirt with all the Corines, you know, all the girl dancers. And they were in the putt-putt boat coming over to the main stage in his big white, you know, I'm a bad, bad man outfit. And he pinched one of the girls, and she hauled off and went like, get away from me. And he <laughs> fell in the water. <laughs> he fell into the drink. And they had to, like, drag him back up into the boat, slide all the, <laughs> as fast as they could back to the dressing room. He changed into the only other suit he had. They threw him. He just barely made it onto the stage. But I don't know any of this is happening. I'm on stage cleaning my gun, singing, doing what comes naturally. And he comes over and says his line to me. And the first time I see Harv Frisnell, you know, the Frank Butler, I look up and say, ain't you got eyes? And I look up and the man is dripping wet. (laughs) (laughs) And he was kind of known. He was sort of known for wearing a full on head of hair wig. Right. He had like a full wig and he had time to change everything but that. He couldn't change his hair. And he wore, a, you know, a little bit of male makeup because it was an 8,000 seat theater and you had to sort of make up a little bit. And I looked at him and he looked like a freaking clown. You know, it just was oh. like, ah, what happened to you? Thank God there were 8,000 people really far away from where I was sitting because they couldn't tell that I was absolutely, you know, broken up in pieces while I was talking. What a story. People might not realize <laughs> that uh, there's actually water in between the audience and the stage at Jones Beach. Uh, yeah, there's a little stage in the yeah. front that you do some some sure. of the stuff on, right in front of the orchestra. There's a, a main stage, which is kind of small, and they, they pull the pontoon boats right up to that, so you use part of the boat and part of the stage. But a lot of the big stuff happens on the, the big main stage in the back. I don't know how people see anything. Obviously, they all have you know binoculars. I don't know, but it's... It's quite amazing. It when really you did, is. Andy, get your gun, uh, was Guy Lombardo conducting the orchestra? <laughs> no, we had. Now, Guy Lombardo used to be out at Jones Beach conducting sort of the fancy events that they would have. He was famous for being out there on a certain night, and they would do dancing to the Guy Lombardo Orchestra. Uh-huh. That was in another area of the—that uh, was in an inside area. Uh, we had the original Broadway conductor, uh, uh, Ethel Merman's original 
conductor Jay Blackton, oh, and gosh. he was amazing. Just wow. oh god! And it's like a, I'm not kidding. It was like a 30-piece orchestra. It was just sensational. I have some tapes of those shows that I made from, you know, backstage of the speaker, and it's just insane. Just to I'm listen so, to Hart Fresnel sing was like an aphrodisiac. I'm so glad I saw it. That was, uh, I think, one of only two shows I ever saw at, at Jones Beach, but I sure picked a good one. It was great. Oh, I'm so glad you did, too. Yeah. So uh, how uh, was this whole process of putting together the show for you? How long ago did you start with it? Mm, about I want to say about five months ago, we knew we were going to do this summer tour a while back. It's funny what they do too, because if you want to do this tour, if you want to play Provincetown, you want to play whatever, they say, uh, sure, we'll give you these dates. And uh, what's the show? What's the name of the show? And send me a blurb. And you go, I don't know. I haven't done it. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so you have to. So I thought, okay, we got it. And that's when we came up with what the idea was. And so then picked a title and got a, a, a sense of what it was and sent that out. It's like, you know, now we're stuck. We got to do that. That's what the show they expect. But it was a great idea. So we started working on it and we got together once or twice and got a rundown. And then Ron thought about it for a while. And I thought about it and got together for two more days. He came out to Palm Springs where I live. And at one point I flew back to New York to work with him for three days. But I guess all told we were together, maybe six days total. And the rest of the time, I had to work with little tapes. You know, I had to listen to myself sing with our rehearsal tapes. And that was crazy. That's nuts. Well, but James, two days before we came out. Well, it just does because you've got to force yourself. You have to be a real taskmaster and stay, mm -hmm. stick to a, a regime, a rehearsal regime. I wrote what I'm saying. So it was fun to write it. It took, that, it took a certain amount of time to write all the intros to tell these stories and all that. And then you go, oh, now I got to remember all of this that I just wrote, you know, and there, then there's that. And um, you can tell stories like I'm just telling you, I'm ba basically telling you a couple of stories that I tell in the show, but I was just telling them off the top of my head now. And it, it's the same information, but it, it'll come out different every time. I usually do that in my shows, but sometimes people want it to be a certain length. They say, oh, it's got to be a 75 to 80 minute show. It's got to be a 90 minute show. We want a 50 minute show. Well, how, you can time the songs, as you know, it's going to be pretty much this tempo, but unless you know exactly what you're saying, it's kind of hard to time the dialogue. So you sort of have to write it out and get a general overview and then you have to learn it and then forget that you learned it and make it sound like you didn't learn it, you know? Right. It's, right. Cause it actually did come out of your brain. Like it's coming out of my mouth today on the phone, free form. You don't want it to sound like it's part of a speech, but it, it takes time uh, and doing it. to that. And then, you know, it'll be, It'll, last night helped because there's an audience and that changes everything. And they loved it. They really did. They, they really, really get two standing ovations at the end. And I asked them at the very top of the show, I said, you know, we're here. This is the first time we're doing our show. So you're my favorite audience because you're going to tell me later whether you like it or you don't. I want to hear from you in the lobby. I want you to tell me. Got a lot <laughs> of great feedback. And really nobody said, you know, except for that one little song. Nobody said that. And um, they, sometimes they do. So <laughs> I'm, I'm liking it. Uh, don't you think that maybe, um, uh, you know, telling a story in a really tight set period of time, you might have some genes that uh, were passed on from your parents? <laughs> no, because their shows were scripted. <laughs> well, I mean, your, your show is scripted. You wrote the script, you know, <laughs> so you have to remember yeah, and put it in there. Yeah, but you know what's funny? Yeah. I, I wrote it. I timed it. 
I read it at home and I timed it with the amount of speaking, you know, I think I'm going to do and gave myself plenty of time. And I knew I had a X amount of 77 minute show. And last night it was 90. Uh, How did that happen? uh, How did that happen? Applause. You know, it's like, well, (laughs) there you go. It's applause. It's laughter. It's things that go wrong and you, and you can't just say nothing. So right. you make a joke about it or something, or the lights didn't come on at one point, And I had to say, so I'm kind of dark back here. People just imagine what I look like. You know, it stuff <laughs> happened that you can't. And if you don't, you, what are you going to do? You can't not say something. You look like an idiot, you know, so you have to give yourself leeway. So we're, we're, we're unfortunately going to trim a little bit here, a little bit there. I will eventually pick up cues, of course, because I didn't want to rush myself last night. There's nothing worse than feeling rushed. And last night, it didn't matter about time. You know, the Kate Playhouse would have been happy with a 90-minute show. They were very happy with that. Right, Other places right. will say, great, 85, 90, go for it. We love that. Because it's no intermission. You know, it's straight on forward. But specifically for Birdland, they have, this is a brand new theater. It's downstairs beneath the regular Birdland Jazz. And there's going to be a show upstairs at a certain hour and a show staggered, like a 7 o'clock show for me and a 9.30 show for them or whatever. So they're trying to keep it within a certain period so that, one show doesn't start while you're in the middle of your ballad downstairs. You know, a big old jazz band is playing upstairs. That wouldn't be good. So I understand that. So we're just for, just for Birdland. We're kind of saying, you know, if we had to cut, where would we cut? It's a fascinating process because you don't want to lose the through line. And, you know, you gotta, you gotta lose some of your babies. You gotta, you gotta leave some stories out. Some stories I will just, you know, like there's a story of Irving Berlin sending me a telegram opening night for Annie, get your gun. And I love mm. telling that story and I'm going to cut it because it takes, uh, you know, an extra minute. to tell. Well, that'll be in the Can Netflix special. It'll be in the book. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be in the book. <laughs> yeah, It'll well, be in the book. James mentioned your uh, your Broadway musical credits, and we've discussed, and and we also mentioned Andy Get Your Gun at at Jones Beach. But I know there yeah. are some other musical roles that you did uh, beyond Broadway. Uh, one that comes to mind is Wonderful Town. Are some of mm-hmm. those or all of those going to be represented in this show? I talk about Wonderful Town, but I don't sing A Hundred Easy Ways to Lose a Man or any of those ones that are with the chorus. It just I, I had it in the show and I cut it. Uh, a couple people suggested that I cut it. Uh, it's like, it's funny, but it's not great in a cabaret setting. I right. did it once before, but I use it as an intro into can't get a man with a gun because that's kind of a great, and I don't even sing all of that. I'm cutting part of that too, because you know, after about the second chorus, you get the picture, <laughs> you know, and then you can go into the stories about Joan's speech, which like the one I just told you, Right. So it's all a, it's all a process, you know. Um, I, I it's, you want to sing so many so many things. I really have a, a two act show here if I ever want to do it someday. Mm-hmm. But for now, with a just piano, with this, you know, type of venues that we're playing, this is a proper proper amount of time, and it's it's a great fun uh, little snippet of my life, you know. The theater you played in at in Old Saybrook uh, last night, July 14th, uh, is called the Kate Theater. I can only imagine that that's Kate Hepburn. Oh, yeah. Well, she lived here. Her house, Fenwick, was two blocks down from where I'm staying. I went to visit it yesterday again. Beautiful, right on the bay. And two miles from here is uh, the Old Saybrook downtown area. And they built a beautiful, beautiful jewel box of a little theater that they named after Catherine Hepburn, the Catherine Hepburn Cultural Arts Center, mm-hmm. the Kate Playhouse for short. 
and I played there two years ago. It's a great venue uh, and um, wonderful sound and lights, perfect little stage. So it was nice to come back and, and open this show here. My daughter is named after Catherine Hepburn. So I was oh. just about to bring her up. Yes, Kate Lucky. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, because she, I mean, I, I spelled it the same way, you know, the K A T H A R I N E. And when Katie was born, my daughter was born. Well, I had, I wanted to name her Catherine after Hepburn if I had a girl the first time, but I had a boy. And then I had another boy. And each time I had a boy, Catherine Hepburn, through a mutual friend, found out that I wasn't able to name a kid after her. So she would send me some funny letter. And then after the third one, when she heard I actually had a girl and named her Catherine, she said, oh, poor girl, that A. At least it'll teach her to fight. <laughs> That's great. Well, yeah, uh, so. Lucy, I know that you have to go make a uh, <laughs> at least a ferry and other uh, types of things. So let us let you go. But I want to remind listeners that um, you have shows coming up at Birdland Theater July 17th to the 21st, uh, July 23rd at the Crown and Anchor in Provincetown, on August 1st at the Willow Bay Theater. And you can catch August 4th. Oh, August 4th yeah. at the Willow Bay Theater. Excuse me. August 4th in Jamestown, New York, my mother's hometown yep. for the Lucy oh. Festival and the opening of the new National Comedy Center, which is a big, big deal. And there's a lot of wonderful people coming in for that. So I'm going up there for that. And then I'll be heading home and we'll do this again. But this is the first leg of this tour. Great. You can catch up with Lucy on uh, on the internet at lucyarnez.com, and she's also got links to Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook there, so you can catch up with her as well. Lucy, thank you so much for spending some of your Sunday with us. We really appreciate it. It was a great way to start off my Sunday morning. Thanks, everybody, for calling. Thanks so much. Thank you. If he really truly knew me, maybe would see the other side of me I seldom see if there were no music if his melody stopped playing would he be the kind of man I'd want to see tonight Does Okay, so Jen, you got a chance to see Mary Page Marlowe at Second Stages Off-Broadway Venue on 43rd Street. So tell us, how was it? It's interesting. <laughs> I know that's sort of a cop-out. But uh, when I left the play, I left feeling very dissatisfied. And yet it, it stayed in my mind. I haven't been able uh, to stop thinking about it. So that suggests to me that it was more effective than I originally gave it credit for. Mary Page Marlowe is by Tracy Letts, and everyone knows Tracy Letts from August Osage County. The subsequent plays that, that he's done at least here in New York, and both of them at second stage, have been much smaller uh, in scope or in intent. They've looked, they've zeroed in on one particular person and looked at that person's attitude towards his or her life. Last year, we got The Man from Nebraska, and this uh, year it is... Mary Page Marlowe, who's just an average woman. She's a CPA. 
she gets married, divorced, married again, and in her case, divorced again. Uh, she uh, has two kids. She has an affair while she's married. It is just an average life. And the way, the thing that's uh, most interesting about the play is the way in which Letts has decided to tell her life. It's in a series of scenes that are not in any chronological order. We can be at one moment uh, with Mary Page, which is how she's referred to most of the time, when she's in her college dorm room and she's 19 years old. The next minute we can be with her when she's uh, 36 years old and telling her kids that she and their dad are getting divorced. And so it's, again, these short scenes told out of sequence. But raising the ante is the fact that Mary Page is played by six different actresses. Uh, and so you're pretty clear who's Mary Page in uh, a scene but there's been no real concerted effort, I don't think, to have the actors all share certain gestures or characteristics. What I think uh, Let's is doing is trying to replicate the way, particularly as we get older, we think about our lives. And I think that's very effective. We do just, we're seeing something or reading something or talking to someone and a memory from our own life just sort of floats into our, our, our consciousness. And it, we, we go through, we, we look at it, we think, oh gosh, why did I do that? Or I can't believe I was that young or I can't believe I was that stupid. Or, oh, I really told him off, didn't I? We just go through our lives uh, with these images, these scenes flashing before us. The reason I left disappointed is there is no framing device. It's not as though we're with Mary and she's old and she's looking back on her life or we're we meet her when she's very young because we don't meet her. We, we meet her, the first scene is in the middle of her life. So it's not as though we look at her and we see her uh, change over uh, the years in a sequential way. When the play ended, the audience was taken aback because uh, we weren't really sh quite sure it had ended. Um, uh, as a matter of fact, usually I try not to spoil things, but I'm going to actually say how it ended so that if people go to see it, uh, they know they should start clapping then because we had sort of a little embarrassed break. She's at the cleaners. That's how it ends. She picks up her cleaning. She leaves the store. The lights go down and the show is over. It's a very that doesn't, odd show. That doesn't follow it traditional structure of a show <laughs> <laughs> no it's it's a very very uh odd show it's directed by lila nugabauer who's a terrific director and it's it's got uh an 18 member cast and i think it would only have been done for a playwright of um 
Tracy Letts uh, uh, standing because some of the actors have really maybe 10 lines and there is no doubling. So uh, when they came out for the curtain call, there are the six Neary's and then 12 other people uh, representing uh, uh, people from their lives. I think what's really going to happen with this play is that uh, all over the country, people will be doing scenes from it in acting classes and maybe as audition pieces. The writing, as you might expect, is terrific. And uh, so is the, uh, the, the acting. Um, uh, I don't, I, I don't know what else to to say about it. Uh, it's it's a it's an interesting, odd play. All right. So uh, I think that what you're expressing is a common theme among a lot of reviews that I've read about Mary Page Marlowe. Uh, there is uh, there's good there. There's confusion there, and uh, I, I think that. Um, some have expressed uh, to me, why is Second Stage doing this? And I think that what happens is that when Tracy Letts says, mm-hmm. I want to do my show, you say yes, not knowing, you know, <laughs> which mm-hmm. Tracy Letts is going to show up. <laughs> so. Right, right. Although I did run into two uh, critics there uh, for major publications, I, w- I won't call them out, and they were both uh, this play had been done by uh, Steppenwolf in Chicago, and I think that's maybe one of the reasons it's got 18 characters. It got the whole company in there. Um, and uh, at least one of these uh, critics had gone out to Chicago to see it and said he had been terribly moved by it there. And um, we uh, left uh, the building uh, together, and he said, and I was moved all over again. So I, I don't know. I guess it it can hit some people, and as I said, it's lingered with me. Hmm. All right. So uh, that is Mary Page Marlowe at Second Stage Theater. Um, next up, Michael, you got down to uh, – is it the public theater to see Log Cabin? Playwrights Horizons. Playwrights Horizons, excuse me, to see Log Cabin. So tell us about that. Yes, well, uh, Jan spoke about it uh, last week or a couple of weeks ago, and this is another example of a very, very creative play, this one by Jordan Harrison. It strikes me that it's not often not often these days that you see a play that's completely traditional in terms of structure and uh, mm-hmm. themes, and uh, you know, which is uh, only natural. I, sometimes one comes along or usually if it's traditional in terms of structure then there there'll be some uh some subject matter that's that's very very uh, hot button but uh log cabin uh i i guess is it is uh, tr- traditional in neither way it's it's a really interesting play that i think tackles if anything maybe too many issues at once for a play of its length uh there are these two gay couples at the center of it, uh, a gay male couple, uh, Chris and Ezra, and a lesbian couple, Pam and Jules. All right. So first of all, there are, you have, we have two gay couples. Um, the 
and they are both mixed race. The, the male couple is black and white, and the lesbian couple is uh, really appear to be British and Asian, mm-hmm. a white British and Asian. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's so. So already you have all of that going on. Then uh, there is a friend of both couples whose name is Henry, and he is a trans man, a woman who has transitioned to a male. Uh, and so that is the the one of the very uh, occurrent issues in the play. Uh, on top of that, uh, it. It happens that the lesbian couple decides they want to have a child, and eventually uh, Henry, who has become a man but still has a womb and a uterus, is the person who is who agrees and who is selected to to mother to give birth to the child, um, and so that is something that, that you don't see on stage every day or in a movie or anywhere else. <laughs> so there's all of that going on. Um, the uh, And also we have uh, a couple of scenes where there are actually two babies that are characters in the show, and, and they are actually appear as played by two of the adults. So before I go any further, let me, uh, let me uh, just tell you the cast. Chris uh, is Philip James Brannan, and his partner... Uh, Ezra is played by Jesse Tyler Ferguson. Then Pam is Cindy Chung. And uh, Jules, her partner, is Dolly Wells. Then as Henry, we have Ian Harvey. And then uh, another character is Myrner Taylene Monaghan. But then also Ian Harvey and Philip James Brannan appear, uh, at least briefly, as as the babies. And so we get to hear the babies talk uh, because they're played by adult actors. (laughs) So uh, all of that's going on. But we have so many themes in in this play, so many subjects, so many points are hit. It's partly about infidelity, uh, gay pregnancy, trans issues. And then on top of all that, um, it's about politics because the time period of the play is 2012 to 2017. And so if you think about what that is, (laughs) <laughs> uh, what that period included in terms of politics, uh, it, it's uh, you can only imagine how how that comes up. And I think what's interesting here is that um, the playwright Jordan Harrison uh, added and adapted uh, the play somewhat in in response to the election of. Donald Trump. Um, and so this is very, very up to the minute. You, you, you feel like maybe that the final draft <laughs> just came out of, you know, of his printer a month ago or, you know, not much longer than that. Um, it, uh, it's it's really very, very interesting, as I say, uh, tackles a lot. But I, I was certainly never bored. I was always engaged, uh, very well directed by Pam McKinnon, who kind of uh, helps keep it all together. And the acting, of course, is, uh, as you might imagine, um, from those people is, is superb. And it's it's really a very, very thought provoking evening and just the kind of thing you expect to see at Playwrights Horizons. Okay. Uh, so that is Log Cabin. Uh, Jan, any th- thoughts about what Michael said? Uh, well, I won't go into it too much because I already talked about it, but I was a little more disappointed than uh, Michael was uh, uh, in it. I, I just 
really thought he bit off more than than he could chew, and it it I couldn't figure out what points he was making. I I figured out he wanted to make a lot of points, but I couldn't figure out what he was saying about the points. I, I yeah, I don't disagree with that. I I all I I mean is as as I said that it it, it remained interesting, but mm-hmm. I, I I also feel that if he were going to tackle so much, it could have been a longer play or it could have been two different plays. Yeah. Yeah, there. You know, there, there, any one of these uh, issues <laughs> would, would would be basis enough for, for a full length play, and, and especially, um, I think he could have gone more into the issue of uh, how frequently there was uh, so many points of conflict between trans people and gay cis gay people. Yeah, that would have been real and in- really interesting. Uh, and I feel like that was kind of maybe that was added somewhat late uh, uh, just to touch on the subject. But then it, it could have been explored a lot further and, and perhaps will be in a in a future play by Jordan Harrison. So mm-hmm. we can look forward to that, maybe. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so, Jenna, you got down to see Cypress Avenue at the public theater. So why don't you tell us about that? Thank you. Yes. Uh, Cypress Avenue. Uh, it's This is one of those comedies that just makes laughing feel very uncomfortable. I mean, even Martin McDonough's darkest plays don't have the vein of bitterness that runs through uh, David Ireland, very aptly named David Ireland's script. Uh, this play is very timely. It's an absurdist and surreal look at the long-term effects of the troubles in Ireland and how nationalism can become a form of mental illness when it's taken to extremes. Uh, Stephen Ray, who was an Oscar nominee for playing an IRA terrorist in the crying game, which, uh, 20, 25, 26 years ago. When was that? That was like early nineties. Yeah. Uh, this time he's on the other side. He plays a Protestant unionist in Belfast, an upscale community uh, where his hatred for Catholics is causing him to lose his grip on reality. The play is framed as flashbacks during a therapy session. And we see how Eric's unionist ideals just don't fit in Ireland, where even if it isn't fully united, Protestants and Catholics can at least work side by side and get along. Maybe everything isn't perfect, but it's a lot better than it was 25 years ago. Um, But Eric is just defined by his hate for Catholics and the world has spun forward and it no longer has room for his values for the next generation. Uh, His daughter has a child and he convinces himself that the baby is somehow Jerry Adams, the leader of Sinn Féin. And this sets him up on the spiral of over-the-top violence as his grip on reality begins to fail him. It is bizarre, it is bloody, and it's funny in its way, and it's heartbreaking in its way. Um, Eric's insanity is connected to his bigotry, and it is a very nice commentary that it's hard to see where one ends and the other begins. The problem with Ireland's script is that the only character who is fully fleshed out is Eric. Few of the other characters are ever more than just a placeholder, the wife, the daughter, the granddaughter. The only other character who's even somewhat fleshed out is Eric's Nigerian-British therapist, uh, played with lovely, calm grace. Uh, Forgive me, I'm going to mispronounce this name. Ronke Adiko, I'm very sorry, Adiko Luejo. And um, please forgive me for butchering that name. 
but uh, even she rarely goes beyond the cliched, and how do you feel about that level that therapists usually get in drama? Her main role is to be a sounding board for the angry white man. And for the one character of color in the play, it's almost kind of offensive to have her just be a sounding board for the angry white man to talk to. And maybe that is why the play is frustrating for all the dark humor and the violence. This is yet another story about a straight white Christian man who is angry that the world isn't going his way. (laughs) With the rise of nationalism, both in the U.S. and in Europe, it does feel very, very timely but it just doesn't seem to quite work as either a satire or as a criticism of nationalism or prejudice. And I should say the show got rave reviews from many other critics, both here and in Europe, where it premiered. It's been playing for quite a few years now. So clearly I'm in the minority here, but it just didn't quite gel for me. Uh, Stephen Ray gives a fantastic performance. He is all balled up tension and lumbering awkwardness just the movement of his shoulders as he walks, and you can see how clenched up he is and the rage that is just simmering in his muscles. It's chilling to watch. Um, Andrea Irvine is his wife. Amy Malloy is his daughter. They give fine performances, but they just aren't given enough to do to make them compelling as characters. Again, their only connection is to the man, and how does he talk to them, and How do they get in his way of what he wants? Uh, Chris Corrigan has two small scenes as another anti-Catholic militant, and he's very funny. He's got great comic timing. But again, the character is just one note, and apart from the laughs, not all that interesting. Uh, Vicki Featherstone's direction, uh, she lets the tension build gradually. She knows how to balance humor and horror for a proper sense of grand guignol. She does some very nice work, but again... With the uh, when the characters are rather flat, you know, there's only so much she can do. Uh, Lizzie Clacklin, and I'm positive I'm mispronouncing that name as well. Uh, beautiful white set, very simple, very effective, and it nicely indicates the single uh, the single frame nature of Eric's mind. So it's a really nice example of the set reflecting a mindset. Uh, Paul Kugan's Kugan's lights. uh, Oh my God, my Irish ancestors are spinning in their graves at my mispronunciations (laughs) here. Wow. Um, The lights are very bright and stark, so they complement that vision nicely. David uh, McSevigny's dissonant sound design makes the ordinary sound just uh, creepy and terrifying. There's really good uh, sound effects. I couldn't be sure if it was uh, noise from the street outside or if it was uh, deliberate here, but you know, sirens coming on in uh, certain moments. There's really good effects there. There's a lot that works in this piece, and clearly judging from so many of the other reviews, uh, my dissatisfaction with it puts me in the minority. But yet another play about a straight white Christian man who's not happy with the world. Uh, We've seen this before. The fact that it takes place in Ireland rather than the U.S. makes it certainly interesting and compelling. And there is some, you know, some very funny moments and some very dark humor here. But for me, it just it didn't quite gel. It feels like there could have been more to this or it could have either been scaled back or pushed even further forward. Though I'm not quite sure how. Um, it's an, for me, it was a very uneven evening. Um, but you know, I look forward to seeing Ireland's next piece and seeing if uh, what else he can do. Well, you're not in the minority on this program. 
Oh, this, good. This show annoyed the hell out of me. Oh, thank you. I, thank you, thank you, thank you. This reminded me and made me think of back in the 1950s, there was uh, this play famously called Saved, and it had this notorious scene in which a group of young men stone a baby to death, and it created all sorts of columns and hysteria, but of course, lots of people went to see it. And it seems to me that that play has sort of set the template of young playwrights saying, I'm serious and I'm going to murder, I'm going to maim, I'm going to commit violence on stage. This shows that I'm a serious playwright. And as a serious theater goer, I'm tired of it. It doesn't, it doesn't add anything to the conversation. Um, if you're going to use violence, then use it to really say something. We have no idea of what made this man so, this man, Eric, um, so delusional, so right. rabid in his hatred. Exactly. And, and there if, is an implication. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, no, go, go. And there is one line that his daughter says. She makes some comment about, I know the troubles were very difficult to you. And I was wondering, you know, did he, was he injured in the troubles? Did family members, you know, were they maimed? Were they hurt? What happened to him during the worst of that conflict? And what set him off the, that he would be so passionately anti-Catholic? That would be fascinating. Exactly, and it would give a, it would make the character's rage much more understandable and make his insanity more sympathetic, as it is from his very first line, which I don't want to spoil. But you know, from mm-hmm. his first line, he is depicted as a, a bigot, and yeah. and his prejudice just defines him, and that's not terribly compelling. And maybe it's just that you know, for the last several years, we've been asked to have sympathy for bigots and for people with unfounded prejudices. And I'm really getting tired of being asked to sympathize with people who have groundless prejudices. And well, uh, maybe that this, just bled over into my opinion. In this uh, show where he really, where I just said, okay, I'm done. He uses both the N word and the C word. They're yeah. just thrown out there gratuitously. Neither yeah. neither adds to, again, the narrative or our understanding of the character other than, oh, he's the kind of word guy who uses those words. Exactly. No, not enough. And this is a young playwright. And what people need to be saying to these young playwrights, this is clearly a talented guy. And what people need yeah. to say is you need to do more. It's not just enough to shock. I was reminded of uh, Michael Dale, the head theater critic for BroadwayWorld.com. Uh, one of his first comments when we began discussing theater criticism was, there is nothing so boring as someone who's trying to shock you. Mm-hmm. And I really got that a sense from this play that David Ireland is trying to shock us and either shock us or don't, but don't try to sh- be shocking. If you Good. try to be shocking, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to tune out. Good point. Hmm. All right. So that is Cypress Avenue down at the Public Theater. It's playing uh, through July 29th 
and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Um, Last night on Saturday evening, I had the chance to get out to the Argyle Theater in the village of Babylon on Long Island to see a production of Hairspray. And I just wanted to touch base with the listeners about this. We talked with Evan Pappas, who is the artistic director of the Argyle Theater, um, a couple of weeks ago. I'll link to that in the show notes. But uh, a brief review. Michael's going to go see it in a couple of weeks as well, and we'll touch base with it again. Uh, I'm very excited because uh, it's always great to have another professional theater on Long Island. Um, this in a little wonderful village of Babylon, uh, which is easily accessible through the Long Island Railroad. You can take the Long Island Railroad from Penn Station right to Babylon and the and the theater's, uh, you know, a five-minute walk away from uh, the station, so you don't have to worry about getting a taxi or anything like that. And there's tons of places to eat and have ice cream and do other t- types <laughs> of things in the village of Babylon, which is a a plus for many of us. Um, the show is the show. We all love uh, Hairspray, and many of us uh, know it already, so there's not much to talk about about the structure of the show uh, it's got a six-piece orchestra, and they're pretty good. The, the new the theater is a renovated. Uh, it was a legitimate theater, then it became a movie house, and it's back to being a legitimate theater. Uh, it's uh, it's really well done. The uh, cast is mostly non-equity and a few equity guest artists, and but uh, they really pull it off. Uh, I I didn't find anything really uh, lacking, and in fact, we had. Uh, two actors that were really standouts. Uh, the woman playing Penny Pingleton, her name is Christina Emily Jackson, uh, was really good, as was her counterpart in the show, see- the guy who played C- Seaweed Stubbs, Malcolm Franklin. Now, these two lit up the stage every time that they were on the stage, and uh, I'm expecting to see them have uh, a good career after this. It's funny, in, uh, in Malcolm Franklin's bio in the program, It doesn't seem like uh, he thought that acting was going to be an option for him as he is a diesel mechanic. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I think that his days of diesel mechanic are in the past for him because I think that should uh, a few good breaks go his way, he's going to be, uh, he's going to be much in demand for his acting talents. Um, so I look forward to Michael's review in a couple of weeks, and uh, we'll link down to the Argyle Theater and the Evan Pappas interview. And uh, Michael, when you see it, please sure to uh, uh, flag it for us so that we can hear what you have to say about Hairspray at the Argyle Theater. I didn't. I, I haven't uh, checked closely enough. I'm, I'm not going for a couple of weeks, but can we assume that the role of Edna is played by a man in drag? The Edna is played by Jason Simon. He's yes. very good. And John Salvador plays Wil- uh, Wilbur, and he is very good. I, everybody in this show is, is, is really locked it up. The, uh, the, uh, the woman playing uh, Tracy is uh, Kitty uh, Garrity. She is, you know, certainly could make a career out of playing Tracy all over the nation, all over the world. She, she was very, very good. And so, uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, to seeing what happens here. I was, you know, I have a little bit, uh, maybe 
Broadway snob or something like that, but I dread, <laughs> I dread, dread when I go into a production, I pick it up and find that it's an equity guest artist contract and mm. that there's only a handful of people that are equity and, you know, a good, you know, 70, 80% of this cast is non-equity. You would never know. These are people the old- who are going to get, get their cards soon. That's great news. And by the way, the only reason I asked about Edna is I remember reading when the show originally was playing on Broadway that uh, um, Harvey Firestein actually yeah. said mm-hmm. that uh, he could envision future productions with different types of alternative casting. For example, there might be a production where Edna was played by a woman and uh, Motormouth, Motormouth Maybell, is that the character's mm-hmm. name? Yeah. Uh-huh. Would be played by a man. And so I, I, I've never seen anything other than the, the <laughs> you know, the Edna as a, played by a, a man in drag. But, but it is, it, I remember that Harvey Firestein said that. So, um, so perhaps future productions will will go in one of those routes because the show deservedly remains so popular. I think it's one of the best Broadway musicals in the past, I don't know, 50 years. I just love that show <laughs> so oh, much. Oh, you're going to enjoy this. The woman who played Motobouth, Mabel Inga Ballard, and yeah. she was wonderful. So oh, great. Great. This is, uh, this is a great night out at the theater uh, for if you're in the Babylon Village. All right. Uh, so next up, Jan, you saw the saintliness of Marjorie Kemp. I'm so glad I said saintliness because I kept on thinking to myself, saltliness? Saltliness. Saintliness. Yes. Marjorie Kemp. Was it not salty? Well, uh, uh, this is interesting too. Um, Marjorie Kemp was a a real woman. She was a 15th century mystic. And she made pilgrimages to seemingly all of the major sites uh, around Europe. And she also went to Jerusalem as well. And she was just an ordinary British or English, I guess, woman. And at the end of her travels, she dictated her experiences to a monk. She was illiterate, to a monk who wrote them down in a book called The Book of Marjorie Kemp, which uh, is taught today in literature programs and women's studies programs. And if I'm sounding very erudite, this is borrowed erudition. As it turned out, I was having lunch with a friend who is a literature professor, and um, I was, and I, she said, what are you doing tonight? And I said, I'm going to see this play, The Saintliness of Marjorie Kemp. And she said, oh, I teach that book. So she told me all of this background stuff. So I, I thought, oh, and she said, I, I would love to see that. Let me know how it is. So I went in. Um, really sort of uh, excited about the idea of seeing uh, this piece. What I didn't know was that it is a revival of a piece that was done in 1957. Um, I don't think it's been done, uh, at least here in New York, uh, since then. Uh, I looked up the original uh, uh review when I got home, and the character of Marjorie was played by Frances Sternhagen. 
and her husband, whom she abandons along with uh, their six children, was played by Gene Hackman. Um, also in the cast was Charles Nelson Riley, and uh, some people may remember George Maharry who was a, a teen throb in the 60s. He was also in this uh, original production. The play was written by a man named John Wope. Um, and John Wope is uh, still alive. He's 90 years old. And uh, his primary career seems to have been as a set designer. Um, and he also designed the set for this new production. In this new production, Marjorie is played by Andrus Nichols. And I find uh, her to be such an interesting uh, actress. And it really was the fact that she was in the play that drew me to, to, to wanting to see this play. Unfortunately, the saintliness of Marjorie Kemp is written as a satire uh, against the church against uh, saintliness. And I say, unfortunately, because that means that, that it's got to be funny. It's got, if it's going to be a satire, it's got to hit its beats. And this production, uh, directed by Austin Pendleton, who's got to be the hardest working man in New York theater. He, he seems never to not be directing a play, in a play, directing and in a play. He's always working. And it's uh, directed by Austin Pendleton. And it really comes off in this production, the play comes off as like a poor man's Monty Python. Uh, the original production had, uh, I think, 12 actors of this one has nine, so there's some doubling. Uh, one actor uh, plays at one point a, a horse, uh, which is supposed to be funny, but again misses the mark and isn't funny. It's two acts. Um, I saw it on its opening night, and so it was a somewhat biased uh, audience. Although, and I suppose this is the saddest commentary on this play. After the play, I went to the ladies' room, and uh, as I was exiting, a woman said to her friend, well, I brought these flowers, but I don't know what to do with them now. And... Uh, it was just everyone sort of mugging, trying too hard to make it funny when it wasn't. And whatever that phrase was, Jenna, that you were talking about, if you're trying to be shocking, that's it doesn't. There's, there's nothing as boring as someone trying to shock you. Well, maybe trying to be funny. Uh, falls in, in into that that category as well. This was this was a, a disappointment on many levels. People who are interested in Marjorie Kemp will be very disappointed here. Here she's portrayed as a woman whose main motivation is not her devotion to God and her 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 deep uh, faith, but her obsession with wanting to be famous, and she will do 
anything so that she can be famous. And she thinks that becoming a saint will make her really famous. And she annoys the hell out of everyone around her as she tries to uh, make that happen. And indeed, in real life, Marjorie Kemp is a saint of uh, the, the, the Catholic uh, church. Um, but I think she would be really disappointed with this portrayal of her and her life. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about something in the news that's come up this week. Uh, Actress Equity has officially renamed the Gypsy Robe the Legacy Robe. And, um, you know, it's the summer and there's not much to talk about. So you probably got, you, none of you really have an an opinion about this, do you? <laughs> <laughs> let's uh, start. Michael, you said you you might have some thoughts about it. What do you think? Well, let's start by reading. Uh, uh, I'll read the uh, first part of the uh, statement from Actors Equity. Um, <clears throat> not the whole thing, but I guess this summarizes it for those who are not familiar with the situation. Okay, quote, Actors Equity Association has announced that a new name has been chosen for the tradition formerly known as the Gypsy Robe. Moving forward, the robe and the tradition will be referred to as the Legacy Robe, a name chosen by members in a survey. Quote, the Legacy Robe reminds us why our tradition exists. It emphasizes the history of chorus performers, their years of dedication and hard work, and and just how essential they are to every Broadway musical, said Mary McCall, executive director of Actors' Equity. The ceremony on opening night will go on like it has for years, and I look forward to celebrating another season's long-serving chorus performers with recognition of their professionalism as they receive the legacy robe. The name change came following a multi-step process that included a vote of Equity's National Council and recommendations from Equity's Advisory Committee on Chorus Affairs and National Equal Employment Opportunity Committee. Following that, members voted on the name change in a survey. The name Legacy Robe describes the tradition that occurs on opening night of every Broadway chorus musical. The robe is given to the chorus member that has worked the most Broadway chorus contracts. When the original name was intended by members to be an honorific, the name change was made to recognize that the usage of the former name no longer has that impact, but is instead insensitive. As a union for actors and stage managers, Equity has an obligation to lead by example on this issue. The next presentation of the Legacy Robe will take place on July 26 at the Hudson Theater, where the musical Head Over Heels will open. So that is it in a nutshell. Um, this uh, tradition has been known as the Gypsy Robe for decades and decades, and the word gypsy has been used uh, to refer to <laughs> um, ensemble chorus people who go uh, move from show to show. Uh, and that was the origin of the term. Uh, I guess the crux of the matter here is that the the original uh, well, the origin of the word gypsy is thought to have been derogative first to, and also in inaccurate. Uh, it was used to describe the Romani people who would go, who, who would move from place to place, who had no specific homeland. And uh, it, uh, Gypsy came in because apparently there was an initial thought that they were from Egypt, which was not true. Um, then added to that, uh, at some point, uh, apparently Gypsy 
became the source of the word "jip," as in he jipped me out of ten dollars. It's like a synonym, uh, a synonym for cheating someone. So all of those uh, apparently initially derogatory contexts were attached to the word. The thing is that I think from for the vast majority of people, those derogative connotations no longer exist. And Gypsy, uh, in, in especially in terms of the theater, is only thought of uh, as a term of affection and high honor. So there is a seems to be a huge divide between the uh, a certain uh, percentage of people who applaud this change and an, an, another percentage, uh, which is difficult to determine, who really deplore it. Uh, I, I was trying to think of a similar example uh, of an ex- exactly equivalent example, and it's really hard to. I mean, we can think of, of words that have been um, adopted by certain groups, that words that were originally derogatory and then were uh, sort of taken back by members of that group uh, and, and thought of in a positive way. For example, uh, the word queer uh, for homosexuals um, n- starting many years ago, uh, started to be used in a positive form. For example, Queer Nation um, was an organization uh, or a movement. But um, and then then, well, then, you know, there's the extremely dicey example of how uh, the N word uh, is often used by African-Americans in a non-derogatory way. And in fact, uh, there is a really great play called Choir Boy that I saw off Broadway a couple of years ago that is coming back uh, in a revival that deals with that specific issue. So I I urge everyone to see that play when it comes. But um, the point is, in both those cases, I suppose the point is that um, it were there were members of those groups that decided that these derogatory, formerly derogatory words uh, can be used in a positive or a non-negative way. Whereas in this case, uh, I imagine that uh, relatively very few members um, of equity and many, many, relatively very few chorus members and dancers were Romani people. So I think that uh, this is something that could be viewed as as being very hypersensitive on on the part of equity uh and whereas other people might think it's that it's only right that they're doing that and i uh you know i have my own feelings but i'm not uh i'm not a part of this situation so i just wanted to lay out the the two arguments rather than <laughs> than necessarily take a, st- uh, a stand but i will say one thing um i think the most famous event uh, that still bears the word gypsy is the gypsy of the year competition of broadway cares equity fights age aids which has been happened uh, which has been happening every every year for many years and uh, is due again in the fall i am not sure if that name is going to be changed i had heard it it was not if in fact there is resistance to changing that the title of that event i i i can only imagine it's going to lead to a huge brouhaha so we will see uh what happens with that when the time comes 
Uh, Tom Viola, the executive director of Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS, uh, I think executive director is his title. Uh, mm. I'm not positive off the top of my head. It has already stated publicly this that it's not going to change, but you know, it, I thought that was the case. I, I couldn't actually find the citation. So, if uh, thank you for for saying that. That that is what I had heard. I just couldn't yeah. uh, confirm it. Yeah. But you know, things change if pressure is brought upon the organization. Uh, we'll have to see what happens when uh, Gypsy of the Year floats around again. Uh, Jan, any thoughts about uh, the robe? Lots of thoughts, um, <laughs> and I don't think I don't think it splits uh, as evenly as people who think this is a good idea and people who think it's not. A, a good idea. Um, I, I, I'm a traditionalist. I think the, the idea of the robe, I think even the idea of dancers thinking of themselves and using uh, this word, there's a sweetness to it. And, and certainly um, the word was meant as a, an endearment and honorific. However, words matter. And uh, the uh, Romani people uh, have been people who have been discriminated against for centuries. They were driven out of countries in Europe. They, it's very seldom uh, is it mentioned, but they were among the people who were severely persecuted during the Holocaust. Uh, mm-hmm. There are estimates that between 200,000 uh, up to uh, over a million uh, Romani people were exterminated. Um, yes, thank you for <laughs> mentioning yeah, that very absolutely. significant fact. Uh, I, as a young reporter uh, many, many years ago, uh, I did a story on the Romani people who uh, objected to the usage of the word gypsy because of the connotations, both positive and negative. It's it's sort of the way that some uh, uh, Asian people feel about being uh, called a model minority. Um, you know, on the one hand, we have like Carmen from the opera is a gypsy. She's exotic. She's sexy. She's wonderful. But that that too is stereotyping a whole body uh, of people. As Michael said, the word gypped, which we hardly think of. I mean, when I actually when I first did that story and they told me about that, I was horrified because I use that word all the time mm. um, and 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 made a real conscious effort to stop. It's awkward for those of us who are outside of a particular group's um, to really say what they should and 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 shouldn't feel i think uh right now the analogy i think of is uh the ongoing campaign that native americans have about the usage of uh indian iconography in mm. particularly uh baseball in sports and baseball the atlanta braves the cleveland indians um mm-hmm. 
people of the uh, really offensive usage of the caricature of Chief Wahoo. Um, they say, stop it. Stop using us in this way. And yes, um, it means we have to give up some things. We have to make some changes. I remember the first time I heard the phrase, uh, people of color. Um, I thought, that's not going to catch on. That is just too many words, too awkward to say. And now it just, you know, we all use it. We all say it. It's automatic. And I, you know, it's it's a sacrifice. It's a couple of extra syllables when you're saying people of color. It will be a sacrifice to no longer refer to uh, uh, people in ensembles to as um uh, gypsies, but I find it really telling that the really terrific, and 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 now um, uh, I hope just semi-dormant podcast, the Ensemblists, uh, they didn't call themselves gypsies. They didn't use any term. They found a term that celebrated who they were without offending other people. Mm-hmm. And so I that that that's where I am on it. I wish it were different. I wish it were a different world, but it isn't. This is the world we live in, and we all have to make accommodations. I think. All right, uh, Jenna, do you have any uh, things to add? Uh, not much to add. No, I I agree. I mean, I certainly understand why this issue is contentious for the theater community. We've used the word for decades as a badge of honor for people who are surviving in an incredibly challenging industry. And nobody wants to give up a badge of honor. I completely get that. But the theater community is, we're supposed to be at the forefront of change. And, you know, the theater plays have tackled issues that Hollywood was decades behind on, that TV was decades behind on. We've led the changes. And that's important. We are supposed to be inclusive. We're supposed to be the sympathetic ones. We are the ones who speak out on issues. And when a legitimately oppressed minority says that a term is offensive, I absolutely agree. We should pay attention and give them the benefit of the doubt. And it is not up to the majority to tell a minority group what they should find offensive. And even if a term has been in use for decades, we can err on the side of showing respect to a minority group and find other words that people do not find offensive. And this is one word that applies to two different demographics. One demographic finds it offensive, the other does not. Um, The one that does not find it offensive, we can adapt. And we should be the ones adapting, I think, because we're not being oppressed and the word has not been used as a justification for oppressing us. Uh, I shouldn't say us. I was never a Broadway dancer. (laughs) But uh, sorry, but I mean the theater community as a whole, uh, from the critics to the dancers to the lighting directors, we can all adapt. We are not being oppressed. And there are still laws in Europe and in cities in America that prevent transient people from staying. The suppression is still going on. And that's something I think we need to pay attention to and show sympathy to. So I'm pleased with the change. And if we stop using the word altogether, I will not be sad for it. Ensemblist legacy, we can find other words that still promote, uh, that's not just promote, that celebrate the achievements of these people. And I, I think we can do that. We should do that. 
You know, it can be such a fine line. I've always found it fascinating that, uh, as as Jan mentioned, people of color is is acceptable and I would say the preferred term, mm-hmm. whereas colored people mm-hmm. <laughs> is, is is considered offensive and outmoded. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think that's sure. fascinating. Uh, but that's uh, you know, uh, I guess uh, as. As Janice says, up to the people who are members of the group, the large group, in that case, the very large group, uh, to to decide. And uh, regardless of our individual feelings about this, I, I don't think we've heard the end of it because, uh, as I said, um, Gypsy of the Year is, is an annual presentation of – Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS. Note the second mm-hmm. half of that. Equity, yeah. which yeah, is the one that just made the statement. So, so one way or the other, either um, uh, Tom Viola will change his mind, uh, and, and and the organization will will collectively change its mind, and there will, I imagine, be have to be a, a big announcement about that, or they will not. And if and if they don't, then it's. I I just hope, uh, I just hope it doesn't get. Um, too protracted and, and too ugly. I, I really would not want to see a very, very positive event like that in in any way, Mard. I, I I would hate to see that happen. So uh, I have uh, a few quick thoughts about uh, the renaming of the robe, uh, and I think Jan's point that words matter is is very important as we as we go through. A, a nightmarish presidency that yes he he doesn't understand that words matter um it is important and i think one of the things that is coming out of uh this change is that i you know i had no you you know how when kids grow up and you know when a word is a bad word mm hmm. uh Still, it doesn't register to me that gypsy is a bad word, even today, mm-hmm. even though it has been brought up and intellectually people have explained the reason why this word uh, is pejorative. Uh, and I think that that is, I, I think that I feel like Actors' Equity kind of overstepped here, hmm. uh, overstepped insofar as there should have been... Uh, more of an education campaign because it seems to me, and I don't have, you know, anecdotally, I don't have s- statistical evidence here. It seems to me that uh, a lot of members of equity do not find this word pejorative and are annoyed that this change has happened. And it's sort of like the union has has made this decision with a. Uh, uh, unilaterally and not with the input of all the members. And I, again, this is anecdotal from what I'm seeing on social mm-hmm. media. Yes, uh, mm-hmm. that's what I understand. That, that's correct. Yeah. So um, the other aspect of it is, is I don't know where equity gets off making this change. I, they don't, uh, this is not, as far as I can tell, a financial thing that is borne by the union. I don't. Yeah, think, I mean, that's uh, a good point. It seems like just a tradition that it's developed, a tradition uh, that happens backstage, backstage yeah. in thousands of theaters around the world all the time, with no. This is not. I I I, I, I don't know where equity gets off making this change. 
I don't hmm. think they have the authority to make this change. In terms of that, they don't officially administrate the the yeah. gypsy ceremony. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Do they physically? Yep. Do they actually pay for the robe? Do they? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Nobody has really brought this up. Does equity really have jurisdiction here? That's well, interesting. That, yeah, I, mean, I have no maybe, idea. Maybe my understanding of it is wrong, but I think I think the way you are describing it is correct. So that so we should all. Uh, I I'm mean, sure that's one of many things that we will. Learn I've not been at a Broadway show, and I've been in a million gypsy robe uh, ceremonies. Right. You know, and so. <laughs> all the uh, community, regional, international theaters, London, West End, everything around, are they all going to say, you know, American Equity said we should change the name yeah. here and we're going to do that? That's fascinating. How, you know, what? where do they get off saying this? Well, uh, I'm sure it will all be discussed in in coming weeks and months, yeah. and especially when when that uh, Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS event rolls around, and we shall all see what it is called when it does roll around. <laughs> all right, so let's get on to uh, wrapping up the show. Before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Stitcher plays us. Google Play plays us. My goodness, anywhere that you can listen to find our podcast, you can get Broadway Radio's podcasts. Contact information for Jenna, for Michael, for Jan, for me, and for Peter can be found at broadwayradio.com in the show notes. Uh, as well as links to some of the things that we've talked about today. We have the uh, press release from Macro's Equity. We have a story from American Theater in there. Um, all sorts of other stuff that you can get here uh, in a link to the Argyle Theater and the train station schedule from the Long Island Railroad if you, you want to get out there. So let's bring in Peter to do the trivia here. Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? Well, the question was, what did these five shows that all closed out of town have in common? Annie Two, The Baker's Wife, Busker Alley, the Miracle Workers 2003 Revival, and Paper Moon. And the answer is all five shows were far enough along that they actually had their signage up at the Broadway theaters. The Marquis had Annie Two, the Martin Beck had The Baker's Wife, the Music Box had The Miracle Worker, the St. James had Busker Alley, and the Marquis again had Paper Moon. Jack Leshner was the first to get it, followed by Josh Israel and Ron Fassler. Kevin McInerney also reminded me that both the Prince of Grand Street and Spotlight had their marquees up at the palace, too. So the new question, since June 12, 1996, that's more than 22 years now, there have only been 72 days that Herb Gardner hasn't been represented on Broadway. How can that be? Let me give you a big hint. You'll find the answer in a recent biography of a famous man who actually had a hit Broadway show named after him, one that celebrated his career. All right. So on behalf of Peter Felicia, Janet Tessa Fox, Michael Portantier, Jan Simpson, and me, my name is James Marino. Thanks for listening to Broadway Videos This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 <laughs> 
If there were no music If my melody stopped playing Would I be the kind of man She'd want to see tonight What the hell? It's just a dinner If this doesn't work That's it And can I really be so hungry For a hit If she really knew me If she'd take the time to understand Maybe she would find me The part I left behind me Maybe she'd remind me Of who 